0: On a sad valentine In a place known as Hennigermann A legend began Every woman and man Would always remember The time Welcome Ghouls, ghosts, and all you Slashers out there To 40 years Of my bloody valentine Loy sauce Don't you just wish we had a huge case of moosehead beer to pound back on during this episode?
1: Yeah, it would uh, get me through that singing of yours.
0: Listen, listen, (laughs) I played in metal bands for half of my life. I never said that I could actually sing, but (laughs) uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, we're here to celebrate one of my favorite slasher films ever made, a Canadian slasher, My Bloody Valentine, celebrating 40 years as of the release of this episode, near and dear to my heart. And yes, for those interested, Moosehead Beer, the beer you see all over that movie constantly, um, it is still available in Canada. So if you're in Canada and you're listening to this and you want to celebrate properly, I don't know where you can find it. I know I can't find it here in the States because I looked, but could we get it imported? Yeah. Um, it's possible. Import- importing <laughs> beer on your own is extremely expensive. I haven't really been drinking beer, but I would I would be drinking some fucking Moosehead right now if I had it in my hands. Um, there's something very special about this movie, aside from the fact that you know it's got an awesome, iconic villain. It's got great kills, makes you nostalgic. But Loisos, Sauce, this is a movie that I showed you for your first time watching it.
1: You showed me My Bloody Valentine during one of our legendary drunken movie nights. And I was pretty blown away. And since then, we've had a couple experiences where we've been lucky enough to see it on the big screen. Isn't that right?
0: We have witnessed this on the big screen a number of times. Two separate instances. Um, You know, back when you still could safely watch movies in a movie theater, we did a special late-night presentation at Alamo Drafthouse, D.C. Ashburn. I believe it was like an 11 or 10 o'clock showing or something like that. It was like
1: like a 10 o'clock show. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And at the time, it was extremely rare to see the movie shown at a theater in the first place. But we showed the uncut version at the time, which was the scratchy, crappy uncut version, which was released by Lionsgate back in 2009 on Blu-ray, um, where they intercut the really crappy quality kill scenes uh, back into the Blu-ray. So we showed it that way and marketed it as such. And a bunch of people came. I'm pretty sure it was like sold out, if not very close to being sold out. It was out. very
1: close to being sold out, yeah. yeah.
0: It was a blast. But then, again, years later, I not last year, but the year before, I'm terrible with dates, we got to see this bitch on 35mm at the greatest place on the entire planet, the Mahoning Drive-In Theater for Camp Blood. And it was glorious. It was a rough... Very rough print, obviously. And decidedly not the uncut version. <laughs> of course it wasn't, of course. But I mean, uh, it was amazing to witness this movie under the stars at the most legendary drive-in in the United States uh, with a great group of people that were there all excited to watch it. So yes, and, and honestly, if I'm being totally honest with you, Saucy, this is not one that I grew up with. And I honestly do not recall when I first, got aware of it, or the first time I saw it. It may have been one of those strange instances that I've mentioned on the show before where I watched, like, I don't know, like some random documentary about horror films and I saw a clip from it. And this is back when Walmart used to sell, like, horror DVDs that were rare to find. Like, that's where I found Fright Night for the first time, among others. And it had to have been in, like, the very early 2000s, like the first time they released it on DVD. But as soon as I watched it for the first time, I fell madly in love with this thing. And I think the more and more that we get into this episode and we dissect what it's all about, you're going to know the reasons why we both love it so much.
1: Certainly. I mean, I'm a bit cynical when it comes to Valentine's Day. I think the whole holiday is little more than, you know, a capitalist money-making enterprise. I really only pay attention to Valentine's Day for two reasons. Um, It's my sister's birthday.
0: Oh, wow, I didn't know that.
1: Uh, That's right. So happy birthday, Kelsey, if you're listening to this. But also, it's become a yearly tradition to watch My Bloody Valentine on or around Valentine's Day.
0: That is right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a Valentine for you that you're never going to forget with this episode. It's been highly anticipated for the both of us, so strap right the fuck in and we're headed down in the mine in this bitch and before we do, I just have to say, I know that we don't do video versions of the podcast at this time. I know we used to. We played around with it. But right now, our audience can't see what I'm holding in my hands. Oh, boy. But I had to hold this beauty in my hands because I just received it last week. And it is one of the most beautiful items that I've ever purchased in my entire life. Thank you, NECA. And thank you, Shout Factory, for making this beautiful, beautiful minor action figure for my bloody Valentine. There's more than one way to lose your heart. And I lost my heart to this figure when it was received (laughs) in the mail last week. Absolutely gorgeous with the fabric costume, the pickaxe, the Valentine with the heart in it, the knife, Uh, everything from the detail on his belt is absolutely mind-blowingly beautiful. I haven't opened it, but I had to mention it on this podcast because we're talking about this movie. And this is an item being an action figure collector, all these years, I never thought would happen. So when they announced the figure and allowed you to purchase it separately from the, the new steelbook that they're releasing, I was just astounded and extremely satisfied. And I don't know if I'm going to take it out, Lois House. I wanted to take it out and play with it during this episode, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to behave myself. I'm trying to keep him in the box because he's so pretty in there. So I just had to mention that. But we're sitting here all flabbergasted and, and blubbering on about this movie. If someone's listening to this and they don't know what this movie is, why don't you tell them what My Bloody Valentine's all about?
1: Well, My Bloody Valentine was originally given the title The Secret, which is just a god-awful name for your slasher film. (laughs) Uh, So it was thankfully retitled to the much more fitting My Bloody Valentine to capitalize on the trend of holiday-themed slashers like Black Christmas, Halloween, of course, Friday the 13th. Um, The story takes place in the small town of Valentine Bluff's where a preventable mining accident occurred, leaving Harry Warden as the lone survivor. And one Valentine's Day, Harry goes on a rampage, killing those responsible as revenge. And 20 years later, on the eve of the local Valentine's dance, mysterious blood-soaked messages and heart-shaped candy boxes surface, and the murders begin again.
0: Yeah, baby. And I find it very interesting that they went really deep on the Valentine's Day imagery, Not only does the film take place in February around Valentine's Day in a Valentine's Day dance, but the name of the town is Valentine Bluffs. And the town features a huge sign with a fucking huge heart on it. I don't think I've ever watched a movie, Saucy, where there was this much Valentine's Day paraphernalia. The entire town is decked out with hearts everywhere. Well, they have to give an excuse as to why the whole
1: town thinks Valentine's Day is such a big screaming deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, Valentine's Day... Is very scary for a lot of different <laughs> real reasons. It's like, man, what am I going to get my girlfriend for Valentine's Day? Half the time they're telling you, I don't really want anything. Don't get me. I, I, this happened to me years ago with Danielle. She was like, don't get me anything. I don't want anything. I went to her house on Valentine's Day with nothing in hand, and she told me to leave. I'm dead serious. She said, I wanted that pillow pet with the hearts on its nose from Wegmans. And I was like, dude, you never... T- she was so mad. I searched for hours and then found one in the back of Wegmans and, and brought it back to her. And then she allowed me to come back in the house. But...
1: It's, a, it's a wonder you're not single right now, Justin.
0: Well, that pillow pet, it, while it's not on display, it's still in the closet in our bedroom right now. So he still exists in our relationship. So <laughs> I have something to you know thank for that. But yeah, I mean, the movie, there's so much to say about the story and the idea of where this film takes place, but it's one of the first slashers to really enforce that local town legend aspect, that urban legend of a killer that comes back once a year on a specific holiday to kill for revenge. After this and Friday the 13th that came up before it, this becomes a common trope in the slasher genre. And I think that this film rarely gets the attention it deserves in respect to kind of helping start that trend. The film did not get widely seen when it got released. It actually bombed. Um, I believe that it had a budget of a few million, uh, 2.3, and it only ended up grossing like close to six. So it was considered by Paramount, who released it in the States, to be a financial failure.
1: They were hoping for another Friday the 13th style success.
0: Yeah, which unfortunately they did not get. But I think one of the most interesting things about this movie, when you compare it to a Friday the 13th or the other, you know, pre existing slashers up until that point, is My Bloody Valentine is unrelentingly mean-spirited it's spooky scary it's got atmosphere but there's no real sense of fun or silliness to any of the stalking or kills here Uh, Mabel's death which we'll definitely get to when we talk about the blood and gore in the film is a clear example of how rough around the edges they went with the tone of violence in this thing It's honestly also why it's one of my absolute favorite slashers, because it pulls no punches. And I know I say that um, about a lot of movies, but really, this is one of the originators of a very mean-spirited slasher.
1: Definitely. And um, that kind of contrasts with how good-natured a lot of the characters are. Like They're just nice people trying to live their little small-town lives, and it's completely fucked up by this (laughs) <laughs> by this miner who comes back and starts killing everyone in the most gratuitous, mean-spirited ways. And again, we'll get to that when we talk about the gore. But I do think a lot of what lends the movie its at- its atmosphere is the setting. Uh, so they use the actual authentic mining town of Sydney Mines, Nova Scotia in Canada, and they actually shot in the real mines nearly 3,000 feet underground. Um, they had to bring certain lighting equipment down to the mines because... Um, of the potential of methane explosions killing the cast and crew instantly. So the mine itself is such a great setting. So different for a slasher. It's very tactile. And um, the town itself is this very, like, obviously small knit community because there's nothing to the town. When Sarah, the character of Sarah, is walking home alone one night, there's no streetlights or anything. It's very, creates a very chilling atmosphere because there's no one around.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's like, there's like one cop, Sheriff newbie in town. That's the only cop. I mean, I think you see a deputy in there as well, but you don't see, there's like a huge police force or anything like that. Um, but you're 100% correct. And that was one of the things that struck me so hard when I watched the film for the first time, the mine is such an original setting. Um, it's spooky, it's cold, it's claustrophobic. The idea of going like even a mile and a half down under the ground, like below the Atlantic ocean is terrifying for so many people. So and also for our, our, our slasher villain, in turn, giving him a very unique look that still to this day sets him very far apart from his slasher icon brethren. I think it's a match made in horror heaven because it really brings something different to the table in terms of the look to the film, the feel of the film. It's so cold and wet and you know dusty. And whereas before that you're like, Oh, it's a bunch of kids at, a, at a, you know, on Halloween, or it's a bunch of kids on a holiday or at a lake skinny dipping, getting laid. I mean, this place is not very pleasant to begin with. Absolutely. And, um,
1: the characters themselves, I think, lend a lot of uh, likability, believability to the, to the movie. I mean, the central drama, as much as I wish the film didn't, it focuses on a love triangle between Sarah and TJ and Axel. Um, I know you have to have something else going on in a slasher. Other I'm than- sorry,
0: Brian. I'm so sorry.
1: Yes, Justin, this film was shot in Canada.
0: <laughs> God damn it. Uh, no matter how many times I've watched this, every single time I watch that scene with TJ and Sarah at the Bluffs, and he tells her how sorry. It's a very heartwarming f- scene, and the score, is this bright, romantic, flourishing sounds, and you just can't help but laughing at how Canadian this dude is. <laughs>
1: So, so Canadian. But yeah, that, that subplot is very melodramatic. It's easily the least interesting thing about the movie. But what is interesting is that the identity of the killer kind of remains dubious throughout. You're never quite sure um, who will turn out to be the killer. Is it TJ? Is it Axel? Is it someone else? Um, is, is it, it Harry, Harry Warden? Warden? Exactly. Yeah, Has Harry Warden yeah. come back? So um, during the production of the film, the cast wasn't even given the full script. The identity of the killer was kept a secret even from the cast involved. I think it was
0: until the last day, right? The last day of shooting or when they actually had to unveil the killer? When they killer. actually had to shoot it. Yeah, yeah. for sure.
1: So um, you have TJ played by Paul Kelman. He's kind of the outsider of all the, of this group of friends. He left Valentine Bluffs at some point to seek his fortune on the West Coast doing something. We never really know what it is. We don't
0: know what he was doing. And and it's funny because when um, they ask Paul Kelman in an interview... He's like, I don't know. By the way, (laughs) have you seen what Paul Kelman looks like now? Dude, he looks like (laughs) he's out fucking ranching up some steers and shit with spurs on his boots. He's got like this gigantic (laughs) mane of a beard. He's got like those rose-colored like 1970s um, aviator glasses. And he wears a gigantic cowboy hat with long hair. He looks and sounds nothing like he does in the movie. Yeah. It's hilarious.
1: Yeah. So, um whatever TJ ended up doing on the West coast, he failed miserably and he's returned home. So there's kind of this like mysterious motivation about TJ, where you're never really sure what his deal is. Uh, we do know that he's supremely jealous of Axel played by Neil Affleck, who's now dating Sarah, who had a romantic past with TJ.
0: I would be, I'd be jealous of Axel as well. He's a handsome fucking dude. He's got a very sharp chin.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, uh, You know that they're fighting over Sarah, but the sexual tension between TJ and Axel is is palpable.
0: It's present. You wouldn't think it when you watched it in
1: 1981, but it's there, dude. You cannot convince me that those two don't want to bone each other.
0: I mean, that moment when, you know, they're sharing meat that they cooked off like the fucking engine of a car when they're hanging out in that. The romantic harmonica
1: duet. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, what's more romantic than that?
1: Neil Affleck also uh, gives a great performance here. When you rewatch the film, and without spoiling anything yet necessarily, but you see more and more layers to Axel's character through the performance. And um, once once you know how everything kind of wraps up, it makes complete sense.
0: 100%. I think one of the biggest things about the film that stands out is the cast, in particular, the group of guys that work in the mind together, they have such a very natural and realistic bond with one another. When they party together, they party like dudes that actually work together and hang out all the time. And the same goes for when they have the conflicts. I mean, though it does follow some typical slasher tropes, you know, they're the funny dudes in there, the loud fat dudes in there, as far as characters are concerned, but they're all very, they're all very believably portrayed.
1: Howard is possibly one of the most obnoxious characters this side of an Eli Roth movie. Bro,
0: I'd love to hang out with Howard and pound back some moose bruise with that dude. Oh my God. he Okay, he's not as idiotic
1: or sexually aggressive as an Eli Roth character, but he's just about as annoying. He's meant to be like this lovable prankster, but nothing he says or does is funny, and his pranks would have gotten his ass beat by any sensible human being. I I just can't stand the character. And I know Alf Humphreys was a very nice guy. Everyone loved him on the set. He was very jovial. He was a comedian, yeah, yeah,
0: and and really kept the cast together and everything.
1: But he's not funny in this movie.
0: Listen, (laughs) I think he's hilarious. I think you're fucking wrong. But my favorite character, aside from Axel and TJ, is definitely Hollis, dude. There's literally nothing more epic than Hollis's mustache. I don't think you're a real man unless you can grow a mustache that beautiful. It's a walrus stash.
1: I guess I'm not a real man then. Although I, I did have the D'Artagnan beard over the summer.
0: Well, that's your fault. You should have kept it. Our fans <laughs> wanted it. You ruined it by removing it. People loved that beard. Uh. But um, you said that everyone loved Howard. Well, Hollis actually tells Howard to shut the fuck up in a very mean-spirited way when they're at the bar. And I love that scene for some reason. I know it just comes out of nowhere. He grabs his hand. And he's just like, shut the fuck up. And I don't know. He's right. Yeah. He is. Is he, is he? the audience actually telling him to?
1: I think that's why I feel so <laughs> such a kinship with with uh, with Hollis, played by Keith Knight, who who really is. He feels like the most natural character because he doesn't look like your typical slasher, you know, handsome,
0: clean cut kind of guy. Looks like a regular dude. Looks like the kind of guy that would be working seven days a week at a mine. Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. But by far. Like I said, one of my favorite characters out of the entire ensemble cast before we go any further into the nitty gritty and the blood and guts of this shit. We're going to take a quick promo break and then we'll be right back with Harry Warden, the miner, and the kills.
2: Hello listeners. I want to talk to you for one second real quick about the golden P movie awards referred to lovingly as the golden peas every year. I take the opportunity to celebrate the year in film, and 2020 is no different. Please head over to twopeasonapod.com slash golden peas and find all of the nominees as well as links to a ballot that you can use to vote. Voting is open from January 29th until March 1st of 2021 we feature all of the main categories that you will find at shows like the golden globes and the oscars but we pull the film and twitter and podcast community to get those nominees and as you know they are chosen by you so please cast a ballot head over once again it's two peas on slash golden peas we love movies and we love celebrating movies and we hope you come to the party this year
0: The Epic Film Guys podcast is fueled by our sponsor, Evil Tea, by the Evil Tea Company. Steeped in darkness, Evil Tea brings a sharp variety of tea flavors featuring robust and creative blends for all those tea addicts out there. Use promo code EPICFILMGUYS for 15% off your first order. Please make sure to check out their website at evilteacompany.com to find the right blend for you.
1: And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for sticking with us here on the Epic Film Guys podcast. And we just talked about the characters, but there's one character we have yet to mention, the killer himself, the miner, a.k.a. Harry Warden. Or is it Harry Warden? Justin, and I want to get your opinion, because I know you're itching. You have your action figure over there. I know you want to break it out at of the him. box.
0: <laughs> I'm looking at him right now. I'm seriously, I'm holding it in my hands, and I'm looking at him.
1: Where do you think this character ranks among the great slasher movie villains for you.
0: Oh, dude, he's top five. 100% in terms of imagery and presence and being a terrifying uh, portrayal of a killer. Peter Cowper, who portrayed Harry Warden slash the miner, brings a very animalistic, predatory performance. Um, I tried to look into his background in terms of being an actor. It looked like he had done some stunt work. Um, He had worked with... The director George Mihalka on his previous film, but after that, he hasn't really done anything, which kind of surprises me. Considering, I think in terms of a physical performance, it's brilliant. I think when you compare him to, you know, other one-time villains in slasher movies, you know, you look at anything from like Rosemary's Killer, um, you name it. Th- there's something very special about how he performs.
1: Definitely, I think it was such a creative perspective or take on the masked killer because you have so many killers in movies wearing hockey mask or a Halloween mask, but here you have a character who's masked, but he's masked for a reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you put on a, like a scuba tank or a, a, a mining Any kind of breathing helmet, apparatus? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You, you, are, you get this, you're kind of removed from the humanity of it a little bit. Suddenly you become like this machine almost instead of a human-
0: it also it also um, leads to some more of the mystery elements of the movie. We talked about that earlier. How we don't know who the killer is. It could well, be anyone
1: a, in that scene. A huge
0: group of dudes goes down in this mine. You know, five six days a week to work, and they all wear the same outfit, the same helmet. They all have pickaxes. You know, so that I love that aspect. It could be anybody. That's something that's very different from what we saw come before it. Um, now, I know that the director, George Mihalka, came out and said that when he set out to make this movie, he had never made a horror movie before. He wasn't a horror fan, but the only influence he allowed himself to have was Black Christmas, Bob Clark's Black Christmas. And you can see with a lot of the first person shots and the way that he portrays the, the terror of the minor, um, you, could, you could feel those elements, that influence.
1: Definitely. A lot of it comes down to the performance too, as you mentioned, the stance of the character, the way he stalks his prey. Oh,
0: dude, yeah. The way he stands there with the pickaxe, the way he slides into the frame.
1: I'm obsessed with that part when they're in the mines and Harry Warden appears at the end and he's coming at them and he's smashing the lights one by one. Uh, It's so chilling. It's so brilliantly performed.
0: Yeah, and you wouldn't have thought leading up to this movie, I'm sure most people wouldn't have ever thought Oh, a minor, that's scary. But when you see him doing that with that giant heavy pickaxe, I mean, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of strength from anyone to hold a pickaxe that way and swing it around the way that he was swinging it. So he's a formidable foe. He's definitely not anyone you want to fuck with. And as we're going to talk about right now with the kills and the deaths in this movie and the super mean-spirited nature of this killer, I mean, up until this point, dare I say he's the most brutal slasher villain up until that point? If you put him in a
1: lineup of, for example, you know, Michael Myers, Freddie, Jason, um, I think he earns this place because you can tell from that silhouette. And again, the scene where Sarah's walking home and she's by herself and you see the silhouette of Harry Warden oh, on the house. of the house. Yeah. Oh,
0: the, the shadow? That's one of my favorite images of the entire film. 100%. It's chilling.
1: Instantly memorable, instantly iconic. George Malhaka, I wonder if he was okay when he was making this movie because Um, (laughs) he just went completely ham on the gore. I, he,
0: yeah, he might've been going through something, man. He might've been releasing some frustration, some family issues, something by releasing the the viciousness onto these people with these kills.
1: Maybe he had his heart broken by Valentine or something, but I, I've rarely seen a slasher so intent on delivering audiences, the goods in terms of the carnage depicted on screen. The deaths in this movie are brutal. They're creative. They're expertly realized by the special effects team, makeup. Um, but I only say that about the unrated cut of the movie because if you're not, if you're watching the R-rated cut of My Bloody Valentine, you're not really watching it.
0: Which is weird because I fell in love with it, that version, and it wasn't until I got the 2009 Blu-ray, which was out of print for the longest time, Sauce. And I remember when I finally bought it, I just found it on eBay and paid like $80 for it. Like that's how rare it was. And I'm holding it up now here. I put it in this fancy red case. It's still nice. (laughs) Very fitting special edition. I mean, this was a very special thing to own as a horror fan. It was worth a lot of money. I don't know if it's worth anything now, but it wasn't until last year when shout factory put out their new 4k restoration of the film and actually included and, and, and reemerged all of that cut footage in proper resolution into the actual movie. And it's, for the most part, a seamless presentation, wouldn't you
1: say? You can definitely tell where the cut footage is because it's a little bit grainier. But I have to give props to Shout because they try to restore it as faithfully as possible and try to integrate it as seamlessly as possible. Um, But pretty much when you're watching the unrated cut, any scene that shows any amount of gore was cut from the theatrical version. So you can tell just by virtue of any kind of gore shown on screen, any kind of blood. Well, this wasn't in the theatrical cut. Yeah, and,
0: and <laughs> I, from what I've gathered over the years, uh, even Mahelka himself doesn't know why so much of it was cut. I guess it was a very painful experience where he would sleep for two hours on the couch in the editing room. They'd wake up, and they'd have to edit more, and then they would. I guess they sent it back to the MPA a bunch of times, and they kept getting an X rating. And the rumor that I've read was that Paramount was still getting so much heat from Friday the 13th I mean, people were, you know, the iconic uh, review that Siskel and Ebert did and like, I mean, people were really coming after these movies. So I think that the heat Paramount was getting was all the pressure to be like, well, let's cut this one down, which is funny (laughs) because don't distribute a horror movie if you can't deliver the goods to the audience well then then don't don't then don't bitch if it doesn't make any money because you didn't give the audience what they wanted exactly what they wanted (laughs) in the first place like i'm paying the price of admission to see this bitch get her head cut off let me see your head get cut off exactly exactly so yeah this movie definitely
1: faced the wrath of the mpaa uh three whole minutes of gore cut from the movie just they slashed it to ribbons
0: And then added back in. So like I said, thank you, Shout Factory. Seriously, like when that came out last year, I'm pretty sure you came over to watch that with me when I first got it. And we were just like, dude, this is insane. Number one, how gorgeous the transfer is and how seamless it was that they added all the the cut footage back in. And even Mahalka himself with his introduction to the film on that version says, this is the closest thing to the original vision of the movie that I wanted to present to audiences. So yes, in today's day and age, we like to bitch about a lot of things, but think about being a fan of this movie back in the mid eighties and reading Fangoria and knowing that so much was cut. Do you think a fan back then would go, Hey, in like 30 something years, they're going to reinsert all that footage and I'm going to get to see it in high definition. Like it wasn't even a thought that you'd even be able to present in your mind. So it's insane that we live in this world where as fans, we get so much of what we want. So it pisses me off when fans bitch about such little things. I'm like, dude, you got my bloody Valentine with almost all the gore put back into it. Like you shouldn't have a reason to bitch about anything. I am grateful because
1: some of the Friday the 13th cut gore scenes were just thrown in the garbage can. They weren't saved. They weren't preserved. And all we have are low resolution, like or
0: VHS footage or or video from the new blood. There's just existing VHS footage that would never be able to be put back into a high quality representation of the movie. Um, But getting to the kills, the deaths, the nitty gritty, what makes this movie, what it is, but the movie opens with our killer typically referred to as the minor. He's comping the field, man. He's cupping a tit. He's getting his fucking dick wet. And then it turned getting this chick wet with her own blood as he stakes her through the fucking chest. Her clearly fake tattoo chest uh, with a pickaxe against a wall. Um, I always love how every time I watch that movie with my wife, she's always, you know, we're both heavily tattooed. She's like, that tattoo is so fake. And I'm like, well, this is 1981. It's very uh,
1: clear that they just used a magic marker to. <laughs>
0: Some fucking crayons. Yeah, let's to, just to draw hast- this on hastily real quick. draw it on before shooting. But um,
1: <laughs> yeah, he he grabs that breast very tenderly, Justin.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't think he's about to stake her through the fucking chest, would you? Which
1: what which is what makes it so surprising when he does, and then the title card comes up. But probably left audiences in a shock when they saw it, even without the gore. But yeah, it's a very well done opening sequence. When when do you think that takes place, Justin? Because well, there's some debate I've, about this.
0: Well, I was always led to believe that it takes place like current tense with the story that were presented with this group of people. Uh, we do see that mayor Hanniger receives the first Valentine with the heart in it. I was always led to believe it was this blonde chick's heart that yeah. was ripped out. So yeah,
1: I, that's the impression I got, but yeah. th- there's some people who think it's a flashback and I could easily understand why they would think that.
0: Well, that would at least mean that Harry Warden was able to cop a feel and almost get laid. I mean, maybe he came in his jumpsuit or something, but Maybe that's
1: why he's so pissed off in addition to everything else that happened to him.
0: (laughs) Well yeah, I mean, he didn't get to go to the Valentine's Day dance at the Union Hall, but he did get to squeeze a tit and come in his pants. So (laughs) but the the kills of this movie and we gotta really give a huge shout out to makeup effects legend Tom Berman, who did the majority of the makeup effects Oscar nominated much later in his career for his work on Richard Donner's Scrooged. Um, he also worked on the midnight hour, which I showed you last year for the first time, teen Wolf two. He worked uh, a bunch of times with Brian De Palma, who we're covering right now on our series. De Palma cast on body double Halloween three. And he originated the sloth makeup in the Goonies. Wow. So this Holy this shit. dude. Yeah, dude, he's, he's, he's a legend. And when they came to him uh, to do this movie, he was not, a gore hound. He was not the guy for the job, but he took it because he wanted to be inventive. And apparently they invented all of the makeup, all of the cut kills, all of the bloody gags on the spot. So it was something interesting for him to do um, that wasn't typically in his wheelhouse. Um, but I got to ask you, because we could go down the line. I mean, I think one of the most memorable kills and really what sets this movie off when you're like, Oh my God, this is what I'm in for. This is how brutal and spooky and mean this movie is going to be is I think Mabel's kill because she is like kind of this frail, very nice, warm, cheery old lady. You know, that lady, we all know her. She's like an aunt or a grandma to most, you know, she's the one that helps put on the dance. Everyone loves Mabel, this warm woman and she's just at the laundry mat her her laundry mat and the killer comes in and stalks her viciously terrifying her grabs her by the head and then of course you know she gets killed with a pickaxe off screen and then dumped in a dryer to be fried like dude she looks like a cooked chicken from fucking KFC when they open that <laughs> shit
1: yeah it's it's definitely when you know the movie is not messing around because you have this Sweet, kindly old woman who is literally cooked in a dryer. And you don't see stuff like that even in the gnarliest slashers. You just don't.
0: No. Uh, I mean, like when Chief Newbie comes in, obviously they have this romantic thing going on behind the scenes. When he comes in and he finds her body, the look of fear and disgust and terror on his face is very legit. I mean, it's a little bit campy, but at the same time you could, you could tell like this dude cared about this woman. And now she's literally like a fucking rotisserie chicken from KFC.
1: Yeah. There is like a, a sick sense of humor too, because the way that plays out, the way she tumbles out of the dryer, well, the did dryer she, she,
0: t- well she tumbles a bunch of times still that, spinning.
1: Yeah.
0: It <laughs> focuses on that, that corpse just like, brruh, 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 like, and he just stands there looking at it. Yeah, it wasn't until we got the uncut version of the film where I, where I finally realized, like, whoa, that is pretty fucking brutal. That's some graphic shit right there.
1: The sense of humor also carries over. Uh, uh, oh, I forget the character's name. The The guy who gets
0: drowned in hot dog water. That's oh, Dave. Yeah, Dave gets his head boiled alongside some fucking wieners. <laughs> Poor Dave. <laughs> I mean, as funny as this one is, in theory. The only issue I have with it, and I have very few issues with this movie to present, um, it lacks really any suspense or jump scare aspect. I mean, it, it kind of comes out of nowhere and falls flat. I don't know if it was the way that it was edited um, for the theatrical cut, and then when they added in the cut footage back in, it just didn't seem to flow properly. I, mean, I love seeing his head get dunked in there with all the hot dogs. but and you
1: see like his skin coming off, and you just yeah, shudder. Yeah, it's an interesting you, effect. You shudder to think that the all the kids at the party are eating boiled hot dogs with, like, skin face skin all over skin
0: flesh. Then he gets his ass tossed into a freezer. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean like that one I, I like I said earlier, there's some attempts at trying to lighten up these kills, but they don't come off that way tonally. I don't think at least there's there's not much fun to be had. They're just so mean.
1: Well, yeah, definitely. You have uh Sylvia.
0: It oh, was probably
1: dude. my second favorite kill in the movie. but
0: Really? It's your second favorite? I think it might be my first favorite. I think okay. it is my favorite. Yeah. Well,
1: it, it's really tough to rank all of these because they are, each in their own way, so brilliant. Um, because even if you don't see the kill on screen, you see the aftermath of it. And the aftermath is just as satisfying. But you have Sylvia impaled through the back of the head on a pipe. And then you see later on the water trickling out of her mouth. It's so disturbing
0: because she's just hanging there. Well, also, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but as I was watching the film last night to prepare for the episode, her death is actually hinted at earlier in the movie because when she gets her head impaled through that pipe, she gets lifted up by her head with two hands by the miner. You know where I'm going with this? I'm I'm
1: so glad you mentioned this because I didn't put the pieces together until literally the last time I watched it just a couple of days ago.
0: Yeah, so earlier, her boyfriend, Mike, picks her up when he sees her for the first time, when they get out of work and they go to the union hall to check out, you know, their girls are fixing up the dance area. He grabs her by the head and lifts her up. And lifts her, literally, dude, for real, lifts her up in the air by her fucking head. It's a surprise he didn't rip her head off there because she she was a very young girl. I believe she was only 16 or 17 Hmm. when she took the role. Um, But yeah, and he's a huge dude too. And when he lifts her up, so when when you realize that that's like, a connection there kind of a hinted at earlier in the movie. That's something you rarely see in slasher movies, that much effort put into the details. And I don't know if anyone else has noticed that before, but yeah, that's very interesting. But that, that kill though, super mean spirited. And also one of the best things about that kill, Brian, it's the impressive buildup where she's left alone. She's all she wants to do is get laid, man. She's just laying there ready to get fucked. And all those minor coveralls start dropping down on her one by one, closing in on her, building a sense of suspense. So I think overall with the foreshadowing and the buildup and everything, and dude, the inventiveness, she gets lifted up in a pipe through her back of her head, through her mouth. And all that steam is coming out and the image of her just hanging there by all the, all of her weight, just hanging on her head there. It's terrifying. And that practical head and dude, it, Tom Berman did a beautiful job on that. I mean, a lot of people may look at that now in retrospect and say it looks super fakey fake, that thing you like to say, fakey fake. But I think for the time, I think it's a very impressive kill.
1: Definitely. Well, what about poor Happy the Bartender? I know he's one of your favorite characters, but he, he meets a really grisly demise.
0: Well, dude, Happy shouldn't have fucked around. Number one, he's enforcing this urban legend to these kids. At the bar, the local bar. You know what I mean? Like, he's the one that's obsessed with it. And then he's like, well, I'm going to go scare the shit out of these kids. They think they're going to go have a party? I'll get them. So he goes to the mine wreck area and then sets up this fake Harry Warden thing where they're supposed to open a door and the pickaxe comes out at him. He's a devious man. You know how many times he laughs? He opens and closes that door like five times. (laughs) Every time I'm like, this guy really likes getting his rocks off, scaring people. He
1: does that about one or two more times than necessary. (laughs)
0: Then you should. Yeah. Um, but dude, he gets his, and it's a great setup for his kill because then his last time, it's a great jump scare. The miner comes right out and the pickaxe from underneath through the neck and out his eye with his eyeball, just dangling out. That's my second favorite kill of the bunch. Um, it used to be, probably my favorite until, you know, I've connected the things with Sylvia's death recently, but that is probably, aside from Mabel, the most brutal kill in the movie because after he gets the axe through his eye, the miner just drags him with all of his weight on the ground, just slowly sliding him. Dude, that's what I'm saying. Like, you had never seen anything this mean-spirited leading up to this movie in terms of a horror slasher film or a genre food. You just didn't, You just didn't see it.
1: I remember when we screened this at Alamo Draft House uh, we don't we don't see it happen on screen but Howard dies at one point is killed and the miner hangs him uh, from the from the top of the ladder so when they're climbing up the ladder the corpse drops the neck snaps actually like the head completely gets severed from r- the rest ripped of the body rips right off
0: ripped right off and then the body just Free falls, amazing dummy shot. <laughs> I love dude, my dummy the,
1: shots. But um, when that
0: dummy falls, dude, it's like so much impact, and they linger on it. You just see that dummy sitting there for like a matter of a few seconds.
1: But when that when the corpse drops, there was a woman in the audience. I remember this at the screening who screamed at the top of her lungs. And th- uh, that's the beautiful thing about seeing a movie like this with an audience. Oh God,
0: God, you're, you're going to make me cry, dude. Like that's I miss what it I so for. much. <laughs> I miss, I miss my horror brethren. I miss my terror Tuesday crowd. I miss my Alamo draft house. I miss seeing movies and theaters packed with people that just love to have a good time and just releasing those frustrations of your daily life and just watching people get ripped apart. I just, we'd love to see it. I could see it in your eye right now too, man. You're getting red in the face just like I am. It's just, it's something so special, that communal experience that we talk about every week on this show. where are getting together with like-minded people and just enjoying things together. It's something that, you know, post-Trump and, and, and COVID and something we really need right now. I think that it'll be special when things are, are back to normal or our new normal, whatever it may be. Um, I'm looking forward to it.
1: Definitely. Um, well, I have to mention my favorite kill in the movie. Before we We did, we we didn't already
0: mention it. Is it Hollis?
1: It's Hollis. And the reason reason why is because a lot of times kills in horror movies are very quick,
0: or they're off screen, or they're off
1: screen. But um, he gets two nail guns in the head, so he suffers some major trauma. And it's for me, it's one of the most memorable kills in the genre because of how prolonged it is and how much it focuses on him stumbling around and just really suffering. It would have been very easy to have him get, you know, the nail gun in the head and him to fall back and that, that's the end of it. But no, the scene goes on for quite a long time. It becomes very uncomfortable to watch.
0: And I think it makes it even more of impactful because... We love the character of Hollis, dude. He's this big, lovable teddy bear. Um, And and I have to say, uh, before we go any further here, as original as this movie is, and as much as I love it, dude, of course dumb kids doing dumb things is pretty much the setup for most slashers. You wouldn't have your movie without it. So the blood really starts to spill when Hollis himself is dumb enough and convinced to take a small group from the the Valentine's party down into the Hanegger mine for fun. I mean, dude, does that sound like it would be any fun to you? I mean, this isn't skinny dipping in a lake, which could lead to getting laid or sneaking into a house to fool around on Halloween. Who the fuck wants to have sex in a cold ass, dusty mine? You know what I mean? But without it, we wouldn't have the movie we have. We wouldn't have the amazing atmosphere. And I think the ending of the movie is fantastic. I think the stalking in the dark, cold setting of the mine is really what sets the movie apart even further from other slashers. I mean, like, we keep talking about that original aspect, but I can't hammer it home enough that without that, we wouldn't have as special of a movie as we do.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the ending, particularly, once the twist is revealed, and I don't know if you want to actually get into what the twist is for people who haven't seen it, but the ending is something to discuss, for sure, because once you discover like what's happening, it becomes a real story about like trauma and grief and how that affects a person and how they take on the characteristics of the trauma that they experienced earlier on in life. And there's a depthfulness that's added to the movie. Once that's revealed.
0: There is. And it's also then from there on out, another trope added to the genre where you'll see it done again in silent night, deadly night. Um, But we might as well do it. So spoiler alert, we're going to reveal the ending to you. If, because most of you guys listening right now already love this movie and just want to hear us ramble on about it anyways. Um, but if you have not watched the movie yet, I hope you didn't go through all those kills already either. Cause you want to experience them for the first time on your own spoiler alert. We're going to get into the killer. Um, so Sarah is the one that pulls off the mining helmet of the miner to unveil who our killer really is the sheriff had already received a call earlier that evening that Harry Warden had died five years prior. So this entire movie, we're led to believe that Harry's back. All the kids are like, Harry's down in the mine killing the kids. Um, he's dead. So it was on Valentine's Day, one year after Harry Warden was committed to a psychiatric hospital, that Harry escaped and killed Axel's father, in which we see a very quick flashback, and we, we actually see the imagery of Harry Warden killing his dad and how he's emotionally scarred by this. So, of course, this is never hinted at throughout the movie until the end to not allow the audience to suspect him as being the killer. They really kept this secret, like we said earlier, uh, to the cast and everybody until like the last couple of days of shooting, until they had to actually shoot these scenes. So I think it's a very interesting idea to do that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think Neil Affleck had an idea that he was going to be the killer because they had to get him fitted for the prosthetic arm that he cuts off at the end of the movie. (laughs) He cuts his own arm off. so um, Which doesn't seem to phase him too much. He uses what appears to be like a dull knife to sever his own arm.
0: We do do hear him shrieking, uh, laughing hysterically after he does it. I mean, he's just insane at this point. He's just gone into complete insanity at this point in the movie, so... Um, I mean, I guess that's what we're led to believe when, when you have adrenaline and you know, like a lot of people, like even myself, when I got hit by the car, the one time, when you have crazy things happen to you or you get injured, uh, in a very serious way sometimes your adrenaline is running so high you don't even pay attention to how bad you're feeling like you don't feel pain you're not paying attention to it your brain's not connecting to it so maybe i mean that's just an excuse but i mean it's it's entirely possible that that's the reason why he's able to cut off his fucking arm and he's like oh whatever i'm just gonna he just runs off laugh my head off yeah well um, um
1: that could the ending i think leaves it open for the potential for a sequel but there never was a sequel
0: there never was, but um, if you watch the special features on the Shout Factory Blu-ray, apparently George Mahalka has a great idea. Now, one of the producers that still owned the rights passed away, but prior to his passing, they had had talks about it, and Mahalka had mentioned for years, "I would like to do it if the right idea is presented, if we could figure out a way to bring back the remaining cast that are still alive." And apparently they're all on board for it. Like all of the actors, even the ones that already died in this one are are willing to come back because they had such a great bond. And one of the things that I love so much about hearing the behind the scenes of My Bloody Valentine is the relationships that these actors have realized through making the movie. They're all friends. They still hang out to this day when they do conventions. They all care about each other. They still talk on a normal basis. And that's not something you hear a lot of with slasher movies. A lot of times people don't remember the dude's name that was, you know, running the camera or lights or the grip or these people all really cared about the group and paid attention. And they're like a little family. And they talk about each other uh, in the highest regard. And it's very heartwarming. I mean, yes, that little heart Valentine's Day, but it is a heartwarming thing um, when you hear them talk about it.
1: Yeah, that kind of camaraderie is evident. There's a special feature on the Blu-ray where the cast uh, reunites at a convention and they do a panel and it's very uh, it's very heartwarming to see the cast back together again and um, I mean I don't know if I'd like to see a sequel like a modern sequel made to My Bloody so, Valentine man. I don't think it I would be very so, good especially since uh, Mahaka, he showed a lot of promise with directing horror movies with this movie it's extremely well-directed but he never did he ever do another horror movie after this one
0: um, as far as I saw nothing notable and his career apparently he won like a lifetime Achievement Award for directing uh, a few years ago. But when you look at his filmography, he really never did anything that notable after My buddy Valentine. This is kind of his magnum opus. This is what he gets known for. And, and it's funny because he mentioned, you know, what after it came out, he wanted to forget it. The experience, you know, was very frustrating with the MPA stuff. Then it bombed. And then, you know, at that point in time, you'd think as a young director, this was going to be his springboard into success. And it didn't do that. But years later, Now, everyone, you know, all the horror fans love this movie. Like, I've never met anyone that maybe they dislike it, but they don't hate it. No, no one ever says My Bloody Valentine sucks. Now, we'll talk about the remake in a few minutes, but um, I don't think I'd like to see a sequel. I just don't think this is kind of that lightning in a bottle we talk about all the time on the show that all the stars aligned and it happened perfectly. And it's really hard to recapture that magic. Um, A sequel, you know, in the 80s, I would have loved to have seen it. You know, with the same people behind it and everything, keeping that mean-spirited nature. But uh, you just don't really see slashers this mean anymore. And if you do, they come off as corny or try-hard. This is just a very natural thing that happened with this movie. There was an attempt attempt to kind of
1: have that nasty, mean-spirited tone with the remake that came out in 2009. Uh, And I think we shouldn't get too deep into it, because someday we might want to tackle this as a full episode. But I think for what it is... It's worth watching. It's decent. And there's like I said, there's some nasty kills in it.
0: I mean, dude, we we did a 3D presentation of the film at Alamo Drafthouse DC. I hosted that shit which was amazing uh, proudly uh, because I saw I remember when the movie came out. It was at a time when 3D was starting to boom and my town, Binghamton, New York. Was so behind the times that they didn't have 3D projectors. So I drove an hour and a half to Syracuse, New York to watch My Bloody Valentine 3D on opening night in 3D. That's how big of a deal it was that's to awesome. me to watch a gimmick horror movie in 3D. And dude, in the urban depths of a city, you better believe the commentary that I heard uh, during that movie. It was hilarious. Uh, it was such a blast. And that's why I think the movie is. They were just trying to make it you know, a fun throwback to those, you know, like Friday the 13th 3D, Jaws 3D, Amityville 3D, where, you, you know, you stick the stick the weapon through the screen and, you know, have the audience laugh and have a good time. And for me, it has Tom Atkins in it, so I have to like it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but no, we'll, we'll definitely, someday I'd love to, to visit that one. We'll have to actually reach out to our audience uh, and see if they're interested in hearing us talk about that one. But I mean, I think to sum it all up, the last thing I wanted to mention that I I literally can't finish this episode without talking about is Paul Zaza's musical score to the film, which when you watch the movie, you may not pay attention to it, but I actually spent a lot of time leading up to this episode, listening to it by itself. And man, there is some beautiful sweeping romantic cues in that score, but it also provides a slow, super cold, ominous and calculated fright ride, really enhancing with the strikes of high strings to enhance terror throughout the film. It's absolutely brilliant score. I mean, dare I say when you compare it to something to like Harry Manfredini's uh, Friday the 13th score, I mean, this is like almost a near masterpiece in terms of the actual depth of music that's performed.
1: And it also features one of the greatest end credit songs to ever exist. The ballad of Harry Warden, which I've, was this a trend in eighty slasher movies? Because the Madman Mars also has his own theme song. He does have his own
0: theme <laughs> song. I mean, it was, dude. I mean, you got to think about... A lot of the other movies we've talked about, even last year, Fright Night had its own theme song. I love that there's a song, it's like a folk country song, The Ballad of Harry Warden, which you will be hearing at the end of this episode probably as we're speaking right now because it is so fucking epic. Like You need to listen to this every morning when you wake up. That's how cool it is. Uh, Also written by Paul Zaza and sung by John McDermott. It's not the only folk song. Uh, I know that I'm going to get some heat for this, but there's another one uh, sang by a female vocalist that's also on the soundtrack that's also along the same lines of the same kind of country folk stuff, but it fits within the tone of the movie in this small town setting. Um, I mean, you hear like banjo music, like country music earlier on in the movie. So it's got that country small town setting. And I love that aspect of this movie. That's one of my favorite things about it. And if you don't know all the reasons why I love my bloody Valentine so much after hearing this episode, I don't know what to tell you. Cause I think I laid it out on the table for you flat, baby. Here's your Valentine. Here's your heart. Here's some chocolates, baby. Enjoy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's plenty to admire about the film besides the gore, particularly the setting and atmosphere, but the theatrical cut is so neutered beyond belief that it's not even close to reaching the same delirious heights of bloody goodness as the unrated cut. So my advice to our listeners, just go out and buy the shout factory collector's edition. You won't be disappointed, especially since in my opinion, that's the only way to watch this movie. Um, because you get unless to see, you can
0: unless you can see it on thirty five at the Mahoning Drive-in Theater.
1: Very good point, Justin. Yes, but uh, that that way you can see all the hard work that went into this movie in terms of the practical effects and all of that. Um, but as it stands, My Bloody Valentine is one of my favorite slashers, and I have
0: you to thank for that, Justin. I'm blushing a little bit. I, I like I like when I'm held in a high regard. I like when I'm appreciated. We know. I like when, I, <laughs> I, I like when someone admits that I did something good. You know. I like to be praised
1: Insert I'm human insert smattering of applause sound effect here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. We, Thank we you. miss Nick no. on the soundboard.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, that's the one thing. I mean, like, you know, when we first became friends, that was one of the most exciting things. And uh, anytime I, I get new friends that haven't experienced these movies, it's so exciting for me to re-experience them with them. For the first time, you know, even if they end up not loving it as much as me, it's just
1: as I did with my boys when we watched my bloody Valentine, they would never seen it before. So we're spreading the love on the Epic Film Guys podcast.
0: Go get go get your significant other some chocolates. Go get some Moosehead beer and enjoy Valentine's Day with my bloody Valentine, the original, the classic, the bloody, the mean spirited. And that's our 40 years of my bloody Valentine B side. We hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we enjoy talking about it. Boysauce, if they're new to the show, if they've been listening for five years, tell them where they can find us on social media. You can find us at Epic
1: Film Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can feel free to join our Facebook group, The Hopesters Dumpster, where we chat movies, facebook.com slash group slash Epic Film Guys. You can join a member of the Hopesters Army by becoming a patron on Patreon, patreon.com slash Epic Film Guys. And uh, yeah, hang out with us. We promise we won't bite.
0: No, we won't. We may slash you. We may I don't know.
1: We may grab you by the head and impale you on. A, yes a pipe, a but <laughs>
0: Oh God, this is so much fun. So thank you for listening. And if, if you like what you're hearing, head on over to iTunes and please 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 give us a five star review. Or if you hate us, if you think we're the worst thing you've ever heard, we're a terrible podcast. you can't stand the fact that Oil Sauce no longer has a beard. Leave us a one-star review and tell us how much we suck. We don't care. We love you. So until next time. We
3: will see you at the movies. This a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago this little town When the 14th comes round There's a silence and fear in the air Remember the morn that the legend was born All the shock and the horror was there Oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago.